You can clap. I mean, that's great. Thank you so much for your worship and leading us in worship. And one of the great privileges I have um, is to be your pastor. And I am so grateful that I get to be uh, in this position to with our elders and other leaders to shepherd the work of God and what he's doing, and doing in our midst. And, and I, 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 at times, am just so filled with joy when I... When I look at how God has raised up our youth, and, and we've seen that in our worship at times on Sunday morning, we've seen it when our, we even have a middle school band that plays that's like as good as that, you know, and it's just amazing to me. And, and I also get the joy of um, seeing other ways that our students do things. And, and this last week after the service, uh, someone gave this to me from our fourth and fifth graders with a, with artwork from our fourth and fifth graders that there's some of them in here that I just go, wow, we're raising up real artists. Now, now some have a little bit to, to, to desire yet, but there are a, a number of in here that are just really incredible, and it's just such joy as a pastor to get those things, and that's basically the book of Daniel in artwork. So uh, that was a really cool thing. We've been in this series, and in this series we've been talking how important it is for us to understand our identity, and I've been impressed with how people have responded, and and this has kind of hit a nerve, and I think it's a really good thing then for us to spend time in this. I was actually going to spend about three weeks on this, and then move into authority and power, and I've, I've just felt like God's saying, stay in identity. It's really important that we understand this. Um, and I've shared this before, so I'm going to kind of share with you to help you understand maybe the whole importance of identity. Um, but I've shared before that I have a dog, right? And this dog's name is Tessa, and this dog's a golden retriever. I also have a cat that chose to live not in the barn but in our garage. And I'm not sure what she is. Um, what I do know, though, is that Tessa is a Christian dog. And, and our cat, Abby, is a heathen. And I, I'll let you see for yourself. Tessa, down, down. We're going to pray, guys. Abby, we're going to pray. <clears throat> oh, okay. Tessa, let's pray. Thanks so much for the food for all you give us. Amen. So there you go. <laughs> Don't just take it on my word. That, that cat, you saw that. Oh, yeah, uh, this is the other thing. Here's what I want you to know. Tessa is a dog, by nature wants to please, and what she does is really who she is, okay, who she is. And so because her nature is to please, it's sometimes hard to know her mood. Um, that's a Gary Larson cartoon that was put into a picture and kind of looks like my dog a little bit too, anyway. Um, so it's tough to know because they just want to please. That's just who they are. Cats by nature don't care, <laughs> right? They could give a rip. They, they will look at you and just go, yeah, on my way. I'm going to do my own thing. The reason I share that is because that is the reality in the world that we live. Who we are, by nature, is what we do. That's an incredibly important concept to understand. Because the more you understand who you are, the more you trust that and believe that, the more you'll begin to Reveal who you really are by what you do. Because what you have to understand is the Bible is not a, a kind of a behavior modification book. Jesus did not die on the cross because he was trying to share with us a plan of human improvement 
with regard to our actions. It was not a matter of try really hard and you can become like this. The Holy Spirit was not into a self-help book when he penned this to human authors. God knew the only way that we could become who he had created us to be was to do it from the inside out. It was important that our actual nature was changed. It was important that he needed to deal with the sin, our selfishness, the ability to be self-absorbed, the, the ability to live sometimes and look selfless, but doing so in order to get something from doing that. There's just so many ways that by nature, this is how we respond. And the word of God says it's usually in a direction of self-protection. It's usually in a, a, a direction of self-preservation. You know, pers- there we go. Get the word out. But it's often about self. And the only way he could get us to become the people who he actually created us to be before sin was to give us a new nature and a new heart. And so Jesus died that we might die to our sin and be raised to him to a new life. And now with that great transaction, if you ever have come to a place where you've confessed your heart and your sin and your need of God, maybe it was rock bottom. I've heard of people when they hit rock bottom, they go, I, I just... I know I need God to get me to where I need to go. Or some, in in the midst of seeing something really incredible happen through them, they go, wow, this was more than me, this was God. And they turn to God. However you did. One of the things that God wants you to do is to begin to live out of that new nature that he has placed in you. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter five, 2, verses 15. Verses, chapter 5, verses seven, 15 and 17. I'll get it right. And let's read these together. And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. I'm going to read this out of the Living Bible and continue standing just to hear this word. And I'm going to actually read verses, verse 16 that I didn't have up here. It says, Jesus died for all so that all who live, having received eternal life from him, might live no longer for themselves to please themselves, but to spend their lives pleasing Christ who died and rose again for them. So stop evaluating Christians by what the world thinks about them or by what they seem to be like on the outside. Once I mistakenly thought of Christ that way, merely as a human being like myself, how differently, Paul says, I feel now. And he goes on and he says, when someone becomes a Christian, when someone has that eternal transaction where they place their faith in this God who created them, He becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. You may be seated. What I want you to understand about this is I, for my life, for many times throughout my life, have lived under the misconception that I'm trying to become this. It's almost a victim kind of thing. I'm going to try to become like Christ. How many are trying to become like Christ? 
that is a little bit of a misnomer. Because what really you're doing is believing in who Jesus says you are. And as you believe in that and trust and then obey that, it's not about trying. It's about revelation. It's about unveiling who you really are. You catch the difference? This is much more of a victor stance. It's kind of like, this is who I am. And so now I'm going to get to know who I am and who Jesus is and, and understand what this relationship is like. And so no more is it so much about my effort to become like this. It's about God's work that's been accomplished in us. And now it's up to him to unveil that. It goes on at one point in, 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 in the book of Romans where it says the children, you know, creation groans and, 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 and all creation is waiting for the what? The children to try to become like it, but for the revelation of the children of God. Think about this for a second. Not only is the creation itself, but there are people around you waiting for you to get to know who you are, to trust that, and then obey God's prompting in your life. Because they're waiting to see, they need to see God unveil who you really are. Because who you are will change your life. Not you, but God through you. You catch that? That's an important thing to understand. So we see, we read, we read here that when, when we decided to follow Jesus and opened our hearts to the Holy Spirit, God deposited a new nature within us. And this new nature looks at life as God looks at life. We look at people differently now according to that word of God. And we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. But we also have to learn something critically important, and that is this, that we need to look at ourselves differently. We need to look at ourselves as God sees us. We need to believe what God says about who we are. The NIV says we are a new creation. The Living Bible says we are a brand new person inside. The Passion Translation says we have become an entirely new creation. The Message Bible says it this way. Now we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with Christ, the Messiah, gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone and new life burgeons. What eternally is gone is our old identity, our life of sin, the power of Satan, the religious works of trying to please God. Our old relationship with the world and our old mindsets. Can you believe that? All that's gone. That's what the word of God says. But you say, but I struggle with it. Of course you do, because what God is doing is unveiling this new in you. And this is our new nature. It's our new identity. And so you are loved by God the Father in the same way, to the same degree that God the Father loves his chosen and precious son, Jesus. Think about that. In Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he sees you the very same way he sees Jesus. Can you imagine that? He looked at him and he goes, man, I'm thrilled. Look at this. My son, every impulse in him is to do what I've created him to do. Everything about him seeks to trust and and lives in obedience to the spirit of God placed in him. He looks at you like that because that's who you are. That is who you are. The real critical decision in my life and your life is whether we will trust it and obey and walk in it. And folks, if we do that, the power of God will be released 
in a way the world has not seen, this community will not have seen. Because this is who you are. It's not who you're trying to become. Your identity was established the moment you believed. It was established on the cross through Jesus Christ, and then you just trusted that. The call of the New Testament, the challenge of Jesus to each and every one of us is to live the truth of who we are. Now, I began this series and I talked about the Lord's Prayer. And the reason I talked about the Lord's Prayer is because Jesus felt it was central to what we understood about our identity. The reason he wanted us to pray this on a regular basis is because it starts with two words. Abba, Dad. Our Father who lives in the heavens, which is not out there somewhere, but all around us. This God is so amazing, so good. May our lives, may may all this world cause your name to be hallowed and made great. And may we do so by doing what? By bringing in from heaven this realm of the spirit uh, through our lives into earth these things of God. And doing this knowing that he will protect us and provide for us every step of the way. He will give us what we need every day. He will actually forgive us because we're all, we're all going to need it. And because we have been forgiven, we're going to go around and forgive others. And we're going to walk this life in a way that we know that we are being led, not into places of temptation that can overwhelm us, but by a God who will protect us as we walk with him and that all that glory will go to his name. That's why Jesus says pray that on a regular basis. It will cement in place who you are. You are a child to the God of the universe. And all those things that were said are true of you. So he makes a statement, and, and, and we looked at that, and then we looked last week, and we, we learned about the 70. There were 12 that were called together, and these 12 were significant because just as the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 apostles, Jesus didn't choose 10 or 11 or 13 or 14 or 15. He chose 12 because these 12 represented the new Israel, the church of God, who would begin to live in Israel, the truth of God, with Jesus as their leader. And then he calls together 70. We said 70. He didn't call 55. He didn't call 75. He called 70. Because back in the Old Testament. There's a passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 11. Or 10. Which talks about the table of nations. There's about 70 nations. Is what it says. There's 70 nations. Which represented all the world. So he calls the 12. Establishes a church. Then calls 70 as a symbolic way of saying. I'm going to send this message. Not just to Israel. But throughout the whole entire earth and the world. And what I want you to do is to live in this new identity, what has been established for you on the cross through the forgiveness of your sins, this new person that has been created within you, and all that old stuff that's going to pass away as you unveil to the world who you are. That's our job. And the way that we do that is by remembering the names that God has called us. It's so important. One of the things we do, we live in a society and a culture today that, that is kind of moving away from the importance of, of someone externally giving you a name. Now, all throughout history, we've been much more of a communal society. So in your place in society, it was really important that you sublimated your desires and who you were, in a sense, to the rest of that community. And in so doing, you would be known as the son of so-and-so. And so your name was really important. So the external name given to you is important. Now, that can be limiting, Because you've been given a lot of names that aren't true about you. You've been called by parents even names that are not true about you. You've been labeled maybe in the work or when you went to school or different places. You've believed names that aren't true about who you are. 
Now we live in a culture that says, yeah, forget the external names. And, and, and now it's all about finding this internal sense of you either are creating who you are by understanding your passions and desires or discovering who you are. Their kind of science is not sure exactly what this looks like. But somehow this, this is what leads us. Now, in the same way you can pick up false names there, the same truth is this. There are some truths that you will find by your passions, a sense of who you are. Because God created them in you. But if you're just looking to that, you're going to find problems too because there are going to be all kinds of passions. They're unstable. They, they aren't coherent. They don't work together. You can have one passion one day and another one on the same exact opposite side here. And that won't. The world is saying, here are the two different ways. And God's saying, no, there is one way. I will give you a name, my name, and I will create within you the passions and desires for you to be who I've called you to be. Do you want to walk in that? Do you want to walk in that? And so I just want to go over again some of those names that we talked about last week. Maybe hit it from a little bit different angle. And the first is this. You are chosen. You need to understand. You need to live with this on a daily basis that God says you're chosen. Intentionally chosen. Now listen to the scripture again. Listen to what goes into your heart. Don't just read it with your mind or your, your head. And he chose us to be his very own. He chose you. Joining us to himself even before he laid the foundation of the universe. Because of his great love, he ordained us so that we would be seen as holy in his eyes with an unstained innocence. This is not about trying. It's about who you are. For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children. Through our union with Jesus, the anointed one. So it is tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace. For the same love he has for his beloved one, Jesus. He has for us, he has for you. It's a matter of belief, choice. And I know if you're like me, you're kind of going, but I don't deserve that. Jesus was perfect, he was everything. And he goes, but that's, that's what grace is. That's the gift if you want to choose to receive it. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. I love that last line. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. You are not a mistake. You are not an afterthought. You are not some revision of God's plan even. For be, we're told before the creation of the world, he chose you. And, and catch this, that last line. He doesn't do this unwillingly or begrudgingly. It's not in some sense that Jesus is up in heaven. He goes, okay, Father, I'll go down there and I'll forgive them. This was their great plan. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from the beginning of time. Before the creation of the world, he knew you and he saw you and he loved you and he so loved you that even in your sin, even in your fallenness, even no matter what you've done, he said, I have chosen you. I want you to be my dearly loved child, just like Jesus. You're precious, invaluably precious. You're his treasured possession. You are extremely valuable to God. And I asked you to say this last week, and you you had trouble getting it out, so I'll ask you to say it again. I am extremely valuable to God. Say it with me. I'm extremely valuable to God. Now say this. God's crazy about me. 
look in the mirror every morning and say, God's crazy about me. He chose me. I am his invaluably precious possession. We read last week of Malachi 3.17 where it says, On that day when I act, this is this idea when Jesus makes, when God reveals himself through Jesus, they will be my treasured possession. Just like Israel was now, those who are part of the church who have joined with Jesus and in the tribe of Jesus, so to speak, those who are following him and saying, I want to, to, to know you and grow in you and become more like you. He says, I put in you the very ability to do that, and I will reveal it and unveil it as you trust me. But you need to understand this. You need to trust this, that you are my precious possession. I told you the word last week, segula, means in the Hebrew, a special treasure. The king who had wealth, and he had lots of wealth, but some of it was so special that he would actually guard it and keep it in a special safe place that couldn't be found and couldn't be taken from him. That's what God says about you. You are his guarded treasure. Just like some of you, you think about it when you have little kids. You, you know, you're out in the crowd. What you, you're constantly, your eye is on them because they are your what? You're your guarded treasure. They, they mean the world to you. Do you know that, that, that in this world, you're not wandering around, roaming around as if you're not valuable to God. You are his guarded treasure. The reason he says, our Father in heaven, and you pray this prayer is because you are his child. What I loved about our worship is that, did you love it when, when that, that scripture was read by such an innocent young voice? I love the distance because it talked about this God who never got weary, wasn't like us, wasn't anything like us, this child and this God. We're like that before God. He sees you. When you sing these songs, don't think of yourself as some big, you know, older, some of us are older, I realize that, but you're not that old. God's a lot older yet. You're still a child in his eyes. You are unique and a special treasure of great importance, a treasure above all treasures. And this is true whether you feel it or not. It's true whether you feel it or not. So last week I told you about um, the previous week's message when I made this um, potentially hurtful comment to my wife um, and shared with you, and I got... A number of people right afterwards watching live stream and I'm going, why are you not here? Anyway, I'm watching live stream. Uh, a number who said, thank you for being so vulnerable. And I had someone who's on our counseling staff share with me, yeah, there is a difference between transparency and vulnerability. And I am learning before you vulnerability. And I remember sharing that about Grace and that I said something. I, I was in a point of tension and I wanted, part of it, I just wanted to be funny. I wanted to break the tension. And I said something that I regretted. And so we were out to lunch afterwards with a couple and I didn't tell Grace that last Sunday I was going to apologize and even do that. And not that it would matter one way or the other, but after we get to the table and we're sitting down, Grace says to me, Kevin, you know when you told that thing that you said hurt me, et cetera? He goes, she said, you know, I didn't even hear it. I was distracted. And you, you look at my wife. She's never distracted. She hangs on every word that I say. (laughs) 
You know what's so cool about that? You know, first I went, really? Now I'm offended. I shared with the world what I needed to share. And God, I believe, allowed my wife to be distracted so she didn't get the cut and the hurt because she's so precious and so, so loved by God. And God is so good. That's how he loves you. Can you imagine how many times he's distracted you from things that could have hurt you? You are forgiven, completely forgiven. Eternally, forever, past, present, and future. It's just so hard to get in my mind that God has forgiven me. From the past I can get, from the present, yeah, but the future? But not even partially or until we blow it again. It's the idea that you're completely and totally forgiven by God. Past, present, and future. You go, well, if he's given me all that, then why don't I just live however I want to? Because then you don't understand forgiveness. You've hurt someone. It's not about trying to get back to homostasis where everyone's on the same, you know, you're feeling really good about each other. It's not about that at all. Although a lot of us live that way. It's really about going, man, I can't believe I hurt you and I do not want to hurt you like that again. I want to understand the pain I caused. And it happens in relationship with the God of the universe. You go, man, God, I so want to trust and obey what you say is true about me so that you can unveil to the world who you created to be to be. Listen to these words again from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given treasures of redemption by his blood. The total cancellation of our sins. Paid for completely. All because of the cascading riches of the grace. This superabundant grace is already powerfully working in us, releasing within us all forms of wisdom and practical understanding. You have been forgiven. Think about it. The most shameful thing you may have ever done, God has forgiven you. Just get, bring it to mind for a second. I know it's a horrible thing to do, but bring to mind the most shameful thing you maybe have ever done. Maybe it's an action, something you did in your past. Maybe it's a thought that you had, and you just dread telling it. Think about it. You just dread telling that to someone. Do you have it in your mind? Now turn to someone you don't know and share that with them. You are laughing. Because that seems ludicrous. But the moment you brought it to your mind, God saw it and he knows it. The moment it happened, God saw it and he knows it. And he knows who you are because of your trust in Jesus. And that new nature is in you. It, that thing that you just dread has no hold on you. None whatsoever, says God. He says in Psalm 103, verses 12 through 14, some of my favorite verses, because we could go through the whole Bible. I could spend a whole couple years just preaching through every verse that talks about forgiveness from the Old and New Testament. It's so rich and full throughout the whole Old and New Testament. Not only that, it's the foundation of our faith. The reason we have a cross up here is to remind us all the time that we're forgiven. It's the grace of God that we come before him. It's not on our own merit. It's not about us. In fact, I love the scripture. It says this in this way. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God, the Father, removed our sins from us. As a father has compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion on those who revere him. For he knows, this is great, he knows how we're formed. He knows we're a bunch of dust. He gets it. You're competent, fully competent. 
There's a bunch of phrases in the in the Bible. One of them is that occurs on a regular basis is once you were. Once you were is, a, is an oft-repeated phrase. And it refers to once what you were, sometimes even in the eyes of others. So when you read 1 Samuel 15, 17, God is speaking to Saul, who at this point, he's, he's gotten to a point where he, he at one time was so insecure and he saw himself as being so small and so little. Now he thinks he's big. But he says here in first 15 and uh, chapter 15, verse 17 of Samuel, he says, although you were once small in your own eyes, kind of like now you've come this big deal. You may have been told by your father or mother these words, you'll never amount to anything. You may have been, you may have had a brother or sister that you compared yourself to and you looked at them and you just said, I'll never measure up. And no matter what the label is, whether it's I'm no good, I'm not skilled enough, I'm a loser, give up the dreams because I can't make a difference, quit hoping that someday I'll be competent. Whatever that label is, Jesus says just the opposite. He says you are fully 100% competent to do all that I have called you to do. Think about that. You are fully 100% prepared, trained in every way. God will make sure that you will do all that he has called you to do. What he has from the beginning of creation seen, he can bring about and will bring about. It's not about you. It's just about you believing what is true and allowing God to unveil that to this world. When your father looks at you, when your father God sees you, he sees a person perfectly suited to do all that he has given you to do. Think about that for a second. You are right where you're supposed to be today. In that sense, you are right where God wants you to be to be who he wants you to be. It's a matter of just trusting him and moving into it. Philippians 4.13 is a verse that's often quoted. It says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, or I can do everything, is what we quote it sometimes. And, and what it does not mean is that you can do whatever you want. It is not some kind of human potential teaching that says, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. That's not what that scripture says. It is this idea that no matter what happens in your life, no matter whether you have little or you have much, whatever is going on in your life, he has given you the strength to do and to be who he's called you to be. And he will help you do what he's called you to do. There is a big difference. We live in a culture today that one of the things, you know, I was talking about this communal kind of you get your name applied to you from the outside. Now we live in this culture that says if you just look inside and you look hard enough, you'll either find it or you'll create it or discover it or whatever. It will be who you're supposed to be. And if you just can do that, then there's all this kind of pressure on on, on young people today. Say, we got to find this. And if I can find it, then I'm going to express who I am. And God, I think, cries. And people then go after the search for human potential, sometimes to the very harm of themselves. I was at the Free Church Conference uh, um, just a few weeks ago, and I was listening to a, a friend of mine who's a pastor in San Diego, uh, and Larry was sharing his story, and he's he's actually pretty well known today in, in, in many of the circles of the church today, not just Free Church, but throughout the uh, church world. And he was sharing his own story. And he said, you know, there's a big difference between God saying you can do all that he's called you to do versus what our culture says you can become all that you are, you know, your own human potential can, can do. This, this whole idea that if, 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 you know, you can, you can reach your, your potential. He said, I had to realize at a certain point, if you even read scripture, scripture will even tell us that's not true. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, at one point, or 2 Corinthians 7, um, uh, I believe Paul says that um, 
He says that uh, once you get married, you can't do what you're doing. You're single. He he actually says, I wish you all had the gift of singleness. Because if you were single, you could live unabandoned. You could reach your full potential for what Jesus wants you to do. Because Paul realized that if he was married, he probably wouldn't be able to go from church to church. He probably wouldn't put himself in positions where he would be dying on a regular basis. He wouldn't reach his full human potential if he was married. Because once he was married, he had a certain kind of calling on his life. And he says that to people. And we have this this world that's calling us to this potential. But there are also parts of our calling. So if you've become married, there's a sense that you have some divided sense of your potential. And then when he said you you have a kid, it divides it out a little bit more. Because this is maybe what you've chosen as part of your calling of your life. And so he went on to share. He said there was a point in his life where he was really wrestling with this. He knew a couple things. He was called in this marriage, in this family, and he was a young church planter in San Diego. And he also knew that as he looked in, he had a desire to write and was affirmed by his writing gift. And so at one point when his child was five years old, he began to write a book. It took him three to four weeks away from his child, and he heard his child say at one point, he overheard her say, him say to his, his wife, child to his mom, I miss daddy when he writes a book. And Larry said, I finished that book, they published it, I prayed and I knew that my calling was to be a husband and father and a pastor to this church that demanded a bunch of my time. And he said, I made a commitment at that time not to write another book till all my kids were raised. 18 years later, he began to write. And he's written 10 to 15 books and God has just expanded his ministry. But he said, you know what? If I'd have believed this human potential thing that I can do whatever Christ, you know, I can, I would have probably lost my family. Here's the truth. You are fully competent to do what God has called you to do. And he will do it. As you trust him. And then the last is this. You are significant. Meaningfully significant. One of the basic needs of our heart is to be significant, to find meaning and purpose in who we are and what we do. No matter what the society and culture tells us that, you know, our significance is in our salary or the kind of car we drive or the house we live in or the title that we get or whether we're married with 2.3 kids and live in a, you know, this kind of all-American dream kind of life, whatever your vocational dream is, you're doing it, and you're beautiful, and you're smart, and you're resourceful, and these are all the things. This is where we find our significance, and the Bible says, no, you're significant because you were chosen by God. To be a part of the most significant work of this universe you are called to be his rep. Listen to what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are chosen. Look at how many times the word chosen is. You are chosen by God. Chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a holy people. God's instrument to do his work and speak out for him and to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. When those 70 came back, they were so excited because now they were doing ministry and they even saw demons submit to his name. Jesus was full of joy. He was so excited because he knew that this message of the gospel, this would go to the world. And yet at the same time, he stopped them and he said, in their tracks, he stopped them and said, 
that's really cool what's going on there, but don't base your sense of identity on that. That's not your significance. Your significance is this, that your name is written in the book of life. You have a relationship with the Father. Peter goes on to say, you are chosen by God. And listen, you are chosen for the high calling of a priestly work. Here's how you are significant. You are called to be a priest. Do you think about that? You don't need to confess to a priest. You are a priest. Every one of you who knows Jesus Christ, you are a priest. And priests were basically God's representatives on earth. You think of a sales rep. They, they rep the product from the company to the people who are buying it. And they're kind of that position in between repping. You rep God to mankind. And you also rep men back to God through your intercession and through your prayer. You are a priest. You know that you are probably the only priest in some cases where you work. You have this incredibly significant job because you are the only priest, the one who comes in in one sense, may have an understanding and knowledge of who you are, representing both God to the people around you. And then representing these people back to God in prayer. You may be the only priest where you live. You may have a few others, and that's a great thing because then you can team up together as those who represent God to people. You may be the only priest where you go to school. But you have this incredibly significant responsibility that you have been given because of the name that you are. You get to be a priest when you go to the checkout person at the grocery store. You get to be a priest when you go to purchase your gas at the gas station. You get to be a priest when you walk out of a building and the building's closing and there are people who are cleaning up. And I had that happen just about a week or two ago. I'm going through this building's cleaning up. I had just done a gateway prayer time with someone. I'm walking through and these people are cleaning and and I just looked at them and I had this, this sense inside me, tell them they're wonderful for what they do. And I, I just said, I just thank you for the way you keep this place clean. I don't work here or anything, but I just want you to know I appreciate that. And then I just said, and you know what? God bless you today. And they just smiled. They just smiled. And I thought to myself, I get to be a priest. I get to pray for people. I get to bless people. I get to forgive people. I get to serve people around me. That's a part of what I've been called to do. It's one of the most significant works that you'll ever do, more important than probably the work you're doing in your job in some ways. And don't let Satan rob that from you. It's not what I'm calling you. This is what God says about who you are. You have the ability to represent him, as it says here, as God's instruments, telling others the night and day difference he made for you. Using your wounds to help heal someone else's wound. Because when you have that wound, you have the ability to help someone else. Where you were blind, you have the ability to help someone else see. Where you had difficulty hearing and being sensitive to something, you have now the ability to help someone else hear. That's your that's your significant call. And God's given you the ability to do it. Now I'm going to ask the team to come up. And as they come up, I'm going to share with you one last story. And we're going to go into a time of worship. This is from uh, Tony Campalo, who 
tells about a guy named Fred Chaddock who was at Phillips Theological Seminary. And, and this Fred would tell the story. He was from Oklahoma, I believe it was at the time. And he had gone to Tennessee. They were on holiday. He wanted to get away with his wife. And it was a breakfast thing. And they're at this breakfast place. And this guy with white hair, he, he, older, is going from table to table, almost like this, like the mayor of the town kind of thing, you know, saying hello to people, talking to him and going. And, and he stops at their table. And and Fred wasn't really too pleased about it, wasn't really excited about it because he really wanted just his time to be with his wife in this situation. And the guy asked him, this guy with the white hair said, so what do you, what do you do? He says, well, I'm a seminary professor. And he goes, oh, you teach preachers. And he goes, yeah, I teach preachers. He goes, let me tell you a preacher story. So, okay, he lets him tell the preacher story. He says, as he goes on and tells the story, he says, I was a, a young boy. Grew up in this town, small town. I was an illegitimate child. I had no idea. I didn't know who my father was. And when I go out with my mom in this small town, especially in the early 1900s, when this is when this guy was born and, and raised in those early 1900s, and he said it was a huge stigma. The word "b" was something that was meant as more than just a slur. And he said I would go and um, he. He said I would be outside and people and when, when parents and others would look at me, I'd feel this sense of shame and I carried this shame. And one day he said, I was, he probably was 10 or 12 or so years of age. Um, there was a new preacher who came to town in a new church and he just had this desire to go. And so he went to the church and he heard this new preacher and he was sitting there as a little boy and he would come late and he would leave early so that he wouldn't be caught by anyone because he had this sense of shame and she think he even should be in a church. And, uh, and as he, he would go Sunday after Sunday, he said, I kept going because the guy was good. And he said, one time I was so caught up with it that I forgot to leave early and the people got up and I was kind of trapped. And so I'm trying to get out and I'm this little boy. And as I'm going out, going along, all of a sudden I feel his hand on my shoulder and this hand on my shoulder, I look up at this tall guy. It's the preacher and the preacher's looking at him and the preacher basically says to him, hi, I'm so good. It's good to meet you. What's your name? And, and, and who's your daddy? And he kind of, you know, said his name kind of hesitantly, and you could tell he was hesitant and stuttering a bit, and the preacher looked at him and said, oh, oh, I, I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. He said, you're a child of the Father, God. You're God's son. And he tells the story, and the guy, Fred, was listening with his wife now at this point, glad that they had listened. And he said, that day changed my life. The day I recognized whose I was. And he said, man, yeah, have a great breakfast. And he went on to the next table. As they were paying their bill going out, the waitress could tell that they were out of town, didn't know who the guy was. And he goes, you know who that was. And and they go, no. They go, that was the two-term governor, Ben Hooper of Tennessee. <laughs> the former. And they walked out. And I thought to myself, we are priests. We actually have the ability to help people know who they really are. We are like little Ben Hoopers who, when we hear the fact we're a child of God... It has the ability to change the very trajectory of our life forever. 
Let's stand. I'm going to pray and we'll sing these songs. We're going to just lead some time in worship. We wanted to just take time to let God allow what has been said to sink into your heart. So just, I pray that you will just take this time in worshiping him. Father, thank you for giving us the ability to represent you to others. Thank you for the significance of the call, the competency of it. That we can do this knowing that we're forgiven and precious and more than anything, chosen.